Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel, and this is Joe Carter.
That's Connecticut guitarist Joe Carter performing live on Where We Live. Also, we're on Facebook Live right now if you want to see Joe perform. Welcome to the show, Joe. Hey, thanks, Lucy. Thanks for having me. I understand you're also the director of the music program at Sacred Heart University. I am, yes. So when did you find music? Oh, as a kid, I was, um, I mean, I always loved music. I, wa- I knew I always wanted to be a musician. Um, I started playing guitar when I was about 10 years old. And you played a lovely song. Tell us about it. So that to- song is entitled Berimbau by the um, Brazilian guitarist Baden Powell, who is uh, the master. Whenever people say to me uh, they want to hear Brazilian music, I say listen to Baden Powell because he covered it all. Bossa Nova, Samba, Bayon, Choro, every style of Brazilian music he was able to play, and he played at a high level. And that is one of his songs uh, from a series of songs called the Afro Sambas, where he and a lyricist uh, decided to combine African rhythms with Brazilian music, uh, Brazilian rhythms for the first time. So a series of about 12 songs called the Afro Sambas, and this is Berimbau. Tell us more about Brazilian music, Brazilian jazz. So Brazilian jazz is exactly what it, it says. It's the a combination of Brazilian rhythms um, with North American jazz music. Um, it started in Brazil in the late 1950s um, when bossa nova was coming popular in Brazil. But Brazilian jazz or samba jazz is, has a little harder edge to it. It's not so much vocal-based and soft and quiet like bossa nova, but it's a little bit harder-edged, uses more of samba rhythms, which are a little bit more energetic and um, a little bit more faster-paced, but combined with um, improvisation coming from North American jazz. And how did you find Brazilian jazz? Um... I was I was asked to go to to Rio in 1988 to play for three weeks, but playing jazz music, which is what I played. Um, and while I was there, I was playing with Brazilian musicians, and they would suggest to me uh, other musicians to listen to and other recordings to listen to. And I started hearing this um, combination, and um, being having a jazz background, it was a very a natural fit for me. And um, being a guitar player, it was very natural to switch over to this new style of Brazilian jazz or samba jazz. And was that transition pretty seamless, or did you You really... You would think so, right? (laughs) But no, it wasn't. Um, The famous story, the story I like to tell is when I first went to that gig to play with Brazilian musicians, I was playing jazz, but I thought, well, you know, I'll throw in a Brazilian tune. So I, I told them what tune I wanted to play. It was a tune by Jobim entitled Wave that I, I it was probably one of two Brazilian tunes that I knew. So uh, we started playing it, and maybe about eight measures in, the drummer stopped. He said, wait a minute. He says, you're playing it all wrong. I was like, wrong? What are you talking about? So he explained to me that I was used to playing in 4-4 four, four time, which is what jazz was all about, one, two, three, four. And he said, no, no, play it in 2 four, one. Two, one, two. And that was like, um, it was, there was a, there's a singer, Cayetano Veloso, and he says when he heard Joao Gilberto for the first time, he said it was like enlightenment. All of a sudden, everything became clear. All those questions that you have about life in general, 
all of a sudden becomes clear. And that's what that moment for me was. All of a sudden I realized, forget 4-4, playing 2-4. Now it's more relaxed. It's not as frantic. It leaves more space for the mus- other musicians to put other things in. It was just, it was perfect. And it was just that one suggestion from the drummer. Forget 4-4, think 2-4. And that was my journey into Brazilian music. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nathathanchel. I'm speaking with Joe Carter, a guitarist, director of the music program at Sacred Heart University. Today we're talking about Brazilian jazz, and if you find us on Facebook, you can see it all live and right in front of you. Uh, Joe, you mentioned you when you traveled to Brazil, you went there to play jazz, and then your eyes uh, opened to this, uh, this new uh, type of music. When I think of jazz, I think a lot about improvisation. So when you started to really get into Brazilian jazz, was a lot of it just listening and and uh, mimicking by ear, or was it a sheet music in front of you? Explain the process. Oh, it was a combination of both. I mean, just the same way I learned jazz, um, there's definitely the printed material that I needed to digest, but a big portion of it was listening, and the same thing with Brazilian jazz. It was listening, and it was playing with the Brazilian musicians. When I came back to the United States from Brazil, I sought out Brazilian musicians who were in New York, and I started playing with them to learn the proper way, the authentic way to play it. Because with jazz, you know, with jazz, the music is written a certain way, but jazz musicians interpret it. They put in what we call swing. Well, it's the same thing with Brazilian music. Brazilians have a word called balanço, and you need to put the balanço into the music. That stuff that's not written, it's just understood. And you pick that up by playing with Brazilian musicians, and that's what—that's how I did it. Now, I understand you have traveled all over the world playing. Um, when you think of Brazilian jazz, obviously you think of when you go to Brazil, you're going to hear this type of music. But what other countries have embraced it, and how did that music come to this country? You know, it's amazing because I, I have gone to places that you would think that no one would know the music. I remember playing in, in India. I was on a tour in India. And I thought, well, I'll play as you'll beam too, but nobody will know it. Well, as soon as I started playing the melody, everybody started applauding. It was there. Mm -hmm. They knew it. And another time I was in Siberia, 200 miles above the Arctic Circle. And I was in a a restaurant, and there was a piano player, and he started playing Brazilian music. I'm like, wow, how did it get here? And it's just, it's it's a universal thing. People hear it, they like it. And it just gets from one place to the next place. And the Brazilian music scene in the States, did you see that um, happening in the 50s and 60s as well? I'm not that old, Lucy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it did get here in the early 60s. And as a kid, I remember, you know, uh, things like uh, The Girl from Ipanema. And um, I also remember it getting very diluted and you had... Blame It on the Bossa Nova by Edie Gourmet. I remember Elvis Presley had a song called Bossa Nova Baby, which none of that, that was Bossa Nova. But I do remember um, Bossa Nova taking the country by storm, and everybody wanted that Girl from Ipanema song and sound. Yeah. Let me ask, when you hear that song today, does it make you cringe? When I hear it played, <laughs> played poorly by a wedding band, yeah. When I, play, when I hear it played without that balanço, when I hear it. like that I cringe but when I hear it (laughs) 
played right, it's okay. And that's the swing you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, exactly. I understand you have another song for us. We're going to yes. um, have you play that into our break. Tell us about the song before you start. So at one point, um, I was asked to go to the north of Brazil, to the state of Pernambuco, to a city called Recife, to play with Brazilian musicians there. And when I got there, um, we were talking with the musicians. They were saying, well, you have to learn about our, some of our regional rhythms. And one of them is the Bayonne rhythm, which goes boom, boom, bump, boom, boom, bump, boom, boom, bump. So I wrote a song later on using that rhythm. It's the Bayonne rhythm, and the song is called Papa's Bayonne. And it goes sort of like this. Thank you. 
That's Joe Carter. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. When we come back from the break, we'll hear from another Brazilian jazz artist who often performs with Joe, and you can watch on Facebook Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're profiling Brazilian jazz guitarist Joe Carter. He's also the director of Sacred Heart University's music program. You're hearing us now on the radio. We're also on Facebook Live, too. Now, Joe, uh, before the break, we heard how you fell in love uh, with Brazilian jazz. And you heard it, you came back, and you immediately tried to find some Brazilian musicians to learn from. So now, you know, years later, you're, you're in Connecticut. How do you find people to collaborate with? Well, that's a good question. Um, you know, I just uh, try to uh, hear who's doing what. And if I hear someone like um, next guest on the show and I hear that she's great and she swings and she has balanzo, then I ask her if she wants to do something together. And that's how things start. Now, one of your collaborators is sitting uh, right next to you. Uh, she's vocalist and pianist, Isabella Mendez. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you for having me. So you're a native of Brazil? I am. So tell us how you ended up here in Connecticut. Uh, my stepfather came to study at Yale University. He came to do his uh, postdoctoral fellowship, and uh, the whole family moved. <laughs> me, myself, my parents, and my two older sisters. So you were in your teens when you came here? Yeah, I was around 15. And we heard that um, as a child, Joe started playing. What about you? When did you find music? Um, so... According to my mom, who is listening right now, hi, mom, <laughs> the, um, the first word I said was piano <laughs> because I always loved playing the piano. Every single piano I saw, either like a toy store or in like the mall, and malls in Brazil have a lot of pianos there. And I was always fascinated by the instrument, so I was classically trained um, since I was six years old. And then it wasn't until I moved to the United States in 1999 that I began my jazz studies and my Brazilian music studies. <laughs> That's interesting. So um, you were trained classically, but now you perform Brazilian uh, exactly. Brazilian music. Um, but what was that journey like for you? Because then you were now um, in the States. And right. did you feel, when I think of Brazil, I think of, you know, music plays such a part of that culture. But now that you're here, yeah. you know, how did you stay with, you know, connected to those roots? Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, because my family was here and I grew up listening to not only classical music, but I grew up listening to a lot of Chico Buarque, a lot of Antonio Carlos Jobim, and my mother always had uh, Brazilian music playing around the house. So I always grew up with that influence, but I didn't begin the studies until I moved here until I was 15. I think I was a little older to really understand the beauty of Brazilian music. Yeah. <laughs> and I understand, um, besides being a professional musician, mm -hmm. you are a trained engineer. I am. <laughs> yes, I went to uh, Worcester Polytechnic Institute, WPI, for uh, civil and structural engineering. And I had a minor in music, and I never stopped my music studies on the side. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and what did your parents think that now that you're you know, doing this professionally? Oh, I think they're happy. <laughs> yeah, they really, I'm sure they appreciate uh, both my right side of the brain and left side of the brain being um, uh, used <laughs> at the moment. Yeah, they enjoy listening to music. As I said, my mom's listening to the radio right now. So. Pur pursuing music is hard, so it's good to have it a profession to, to lean back on. Yes, yes. <laughs> and how did you find Joe? So I think we met, was it, I went to see a concert. You were stalking me. I was. <laughs> 
I heard that there's this great Brazilian uh, <laughs> guitarist <laughs> in Connecticut. So I, I sought him out. Like you said, like when you hear that um, people are playing in the air and they're playing the music that you want to share, um, you seek them out. And I was with my good friend, also a, um, a Colombian guitarist, actually, Hernan Yepes. And I went to see a, uh, was it in Stratford, a church in Stratford? Yeah, it was a concert with uh, Ali yeah. Ryerson, the flute player, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Correct. And yeah, I, I remember went you coming up after the concert and we chatted for a while. We said something like, we should get together. Yes. And we did. <laughs> and we did. Right. Yes. <laughs> well, let's hear you perform again. This is uh, Joe Carter and Isabella Mendez. Before you begin, tell us about the song. Oh, so this song is called Brigas Nunca Mais, which means <clears throat> no more fights. And it's by Antonio Carlos Jobim, whose birthday is coming up, actually. Coming up in this month. This month, his 90th birthday, if you were to be alive, um, January 25th. All right, let's hear it. Chegou, sorriu, venceu, depois chorou, então fui eu quem consolou sua tristeza na certeza de que o amor tem dessas fases, mas Essas fases, mas é bom para fazer as pazes. Mas depois fui eu quem dele precisou, e ele então me socorreu. E o nosso amor mostrou que veio para ficar mais uma vez por toda a vida.
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. That's Isabella Mendez and Joe Carter. Today we're exploring Brazilian jazz. They perform together, uh, often along uh, the southern part of our state. Um, you mentioned you've been collaborating for some time. Tell me about that. Um, trios, quartets, and how do you bring other people into uh, your world? So for me, the duo was always best. But we sometimes play in trio, quartet, depending on the venue. Uh, we do concerts where sometimes we're, we're able to have a five-piece group sometimes mm-hmm. or four or three-piece group. So we do it all. I mean, we played in the Hartford area uh, twice in yeah. a row for the Samba Fest that's put on every year. And that's usually a quintet. Correct. But, you know, it's all different combinations. You know, we're also on Facebook Live, and it's, it's great to watch when you hear a, a vocalist singing. I'm, I'm curious, what are you thinking about as you're singing that song? Um, mostly the music and the lyrics. Um, I think when you really feel what the lyrics are talking about, you're able to portray the song a little bit more. Um, so I was thinking about the words, and this the song that we sang previously was Brigas Nunca Mais, which means no more fighting. So it's a, a love song about no more fighting. So I was envisioning that whole like story, like no no fight, you know. <laughs> and you write your own songs as well. I do, yes. <laughs> and tell me about that process. Um, so writing for me has always come very naturally. I mean, since I was uh, younger, when I started playing the piano, I always doodled on piano. And then I remember my mother asked, oh, what, what's, what's that song that you're playing? I said, oh, I don't know. I'm just... Uh, coming up with the song right now with the melody. So I began uh, writing instrumental music, just compositions. And again, when I became a teenager, I began light, writing um, more lyrics, both in English and in Portuguese. Yeah. And one of your newest project, the Bossa Nova project, tell us. Yes, the Bossa Nova project. Um, so that's a very new project, is a new idea that I'm coming up with. And it was inspired by what Joe was talking about in the last, um, the first segment of the show, um, about the idea of Bossa Nova. So Bossa Nova came about in the late 50s and early 60s in Brazil. And it was one of the most um, happiest, wonderful times for Brazil, economically, musically, um, social-wise. It was just a very, um, really wonderful era at the time. And I would love to bring uh, that idea back. Mm -hmm. And the one thing that I noticed with the Bossa Nova at the time is that there wasn't necessarily a band. It was more about musicians coming together in someone's house and playing, making beautiful music. And one thing that always fascinated me about Bossa Nova is that it's a very unifying sound. It came from samba, which was the music from the slaves and Africans mm-hmm. that came to Brazil, and also the influence from our colonizers from Portugal and Europe, um, um, and brought those things together, and that created the Bossa Nova with the classical influence and with the jazz influence and with the African and uh, na- uh, native uh, Brazilian influence. And bringing that back, I think, would be very important right now. When you've played out, have you talked to people in the audience who might come up to you later and say, you know, they didn't know anything about samba or bossa nova (laughs) until they've heard your music and have just been drawn to it? Yeah, I think a lot of people that hear it for the first time, um, one of the most common comments that I hear is that they find it very pleasant to listen to. It's a a feel-good type of music. Um, And we always seem to get, when we do concerts, uh, we always have children coming up towards the stage and dancing. That's when we know what's happening, when we see the kids dancing. That's true, yes. (laughs) And is that the difference when we think of like traditional jazz? You know, people are sitting in their chair just listening and watching the the musicians. But with Brazilian jazz, people are more inclined to want to move? 
Yeah, I think so. I think Brazilian jazz really touches something that um, traditional jazz doesn't all, all the time. Traditional jazz could be very esoteric sometimes, um, where this seems, Brazilian jazz seems to touch something in people's souls, I think. Yeah, definitely. Tell us what you have learned from each other. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I have uh, learned so much from Joe that's Carter. A t- that's I mean, a tough one. That is a tough one. <laughs> I mean, I think we both have, have learned from one another and about the music. I think we've both yeah. uh, shared what we each know about the music. Yeah, and continue to do so. I mean, every performance that we have, every song that we play at a gig, we look at each other like, whoa, we just did that. That was incredible. So I think the most important thing that Joe and I have is that we listen to each other. What? And what? <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, we're almost out of time, but I think we'd love to hear you perform sure. one last song. Um, tell us about the song before you begin. Uh, the song is called O Barquinho, and it was written by um, Roberto Menescal and uh, Ronald Boscoli. Well, thank you again to Isabella Mendez and Joe Carter mm-hmm. for coming on the show today. And let's hear you one more time. Thanks, Lucy. Thanks for having us. Dia de luz, festa de sol E o barquinho a deslizar No macio azul do mar Tudo é verão, o amor se faz E o barquinho pelo mar Que desliza sem parar Sem intenção, nossa canção Vai saindo deste mar E o sol Beija o barco e luz Dias tão azuis Falta do mar, desmaia o sol E o barquinho a deslizar A vontade de cantar Céu tão azul, ilhas do sul E o barquinho, o coração Deslizando na canção Tudo isso é paz Tudo isso traz uma calma de verão E então o barquinho vai, a tardinha cai. Desmaia o sol e o barquinho a deslizar e a vontade de cantar. Céu tão azul, ilhas do sul e o barquinho, o coração deslizando na canção. Tudo isso é paz, tudo isso traz uma calma de verão. lovely. Isabella Mendez and Joe Carter, uh, just another minute 30. I should have asked you, where can we see you play out? Where's the next performance? That's right. So um, our next performance is uh, Saturday, um, 
on the, oh, I'm reading my paper. <laughs> January 21st. <laughs> Correct. So we'll put that up on our website in Middlebury. Middlebury consignment, <laughs> correct. And then after that, we're a home restaurant that Sunday uh, in Brantford, Connecticut. And we're also doing a, another gig, the debut of the Bossa Nova project at Best Video Thursday, um, January 26th at 8 p.m. Well, that's great to know. And again, we'll put that all on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. And Joe, can we ask you to play a little bit more as we go into break? Sure, absolutely. <laughs> again, this is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we're going to hear from two Connecticut residents who served as military musicians for the U.S. Armed Forces. And you can watch Joe Carter play on Facebook Live. This is Where We Live. de você que não quis levar de mim a saudade de você e é por isso que você me esqueceu This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, labor pains and lessons from the North on the next Where We Live. As Connecticut comes to terms with recent job loss, Massachusetts emerges as a regional leader in statewide job recovery. We'll take a closer look on the latest job market trends and find out what Connecticut stands to learn from the Bay State. That's Friday. Now, here's something that may surprise you. The single largest American employer of full-time professional musicians is the U.S. Armed Forces. Musicians have been part of military heritage and tradition around the world for centuries, performing at ceremonial events, serving as cultural ambassadors, and serving in battle zones. This is from a recent performance by the Connecticut-based Eastside Ramblers Dixieland Band. The ensemble's two leaders are trumpet player Pete Rowe and clarinetist Melinda Burnham. Both are retired U.S. Army Staff Sergeants and both served as musicians in Tikrit, Iraq during the war. WNPR's Diane Orson joins me now to talk about her recent interview with them. Diane, welcome back to where we live. Hi, Lucy. So did I read that right? The largest American employer of full-time professional musicians is the U.S. Armed Forces? That's right. In fact, according to their website, the U.S. Armed Forces is the largest employer of professional musicians in the world. That's really interesting. When you think about the military, you don't think of that as a, a specialty. That's right. But if you think about the four branches of service, the Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines, each one of them has uh, military bands associated with them. And they provide a very important role for the U.S. Armed Services in terms of being cultural ambassadors and, in fact, serving in battle zones. So you actually interviewed Pete Rowe and Melinda Burnham recently. Um, how did you meet them? Well, in my other life, when I'm not here at the radio station, I'm actually a professional violinist. And I am the alternate violinist at the Goodspeed Musicals. And I work with Pete. And several of the musicians in the core orchestra served in military bands, and Pete was one of them. What I had not realized was that he'd actually served in Tikrit during the war, and it came up during a conversation we had, and I thought that was fascinating, and so invited him in to talk about it, and he invited Melinda to join us. And what did you ask them? Well, I asked them if they had known each other before they worked together in the band. Okay, let's take a listen. 
We met in 1990 in a different band than we were deployed. Right. Um, we, were, we met in the 76th Division Army Reserve Band in East Windsor. I had done three years of active duty prior to that time. I left the active army in 1988, took about a year and a half off once I started college and found I needed some money and I actually kind of missed it a little bit. So I joined this band in East Windsor. And I was in the East Windsor band since 1979, right out of high school. And um, I was stayed in the same band for 24 years, and then we transferred to the National Guard and got deployed to Iraq. Talk about your training a little bit. So what I did is I did my eight weeks of basic training at Fort Jackson, South Carolina, which is all stuff everybody does when they first join the Army, marching, drill and ceremony, firing your weapon, marksmanship, yeah. um, physical training, uh, and so forth. Then after that time... Military musicians, Army, Navy, and Marines go to the School of Music in Little Creek, Norfolk, Virginia. There's a music school there for military musicians. And you spend six months there Hmm. at that time, and you learn how to be a military musician. Marching band, concert band classes, private lessons, ear training. Can you describe finding out that you were going to be deployed? Do you remember well, when you first heard that? Oh, I'll never forget that. I, <laughs> I got I got the co- phone call from our platoon. Was yeah. it? When we uh, got the call, we were members of the 42nd Infantry Division right. Band. So I was playing a show at the downtown cabaret theater in Bridgeport during that time. And I was home. And <laughs> so I got out from the theater, I don't know, 1030 or 11. And I checked my messages. One of the calls was from Melinda. The other was from a group leader giving us the news that we just got orders that we were going to be mobilized and go right. into Iraq. I thought he was kidding because when he told me that, I said, you're kidding me, right? And he said, no, we're not kidding. I said, a band, we're going to go yeah. over there? And he says, yep, we're going. So it was it was hard to, took a while to sink in. <laughs> yeah, it was an interesting ride home. Yeah. <laughs> what was your reaction, Pete? Well, just like I couldn't really believe that it was happening at that time. We had played ceremonies for troops going to Bosnia and back then. and figured as a reservist or a National Guard, that's about as much as we're going to do. But never in a million years would have thought that, hey, we're actually going to be going over there. Right. Did you have to go through additional training before you went? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Can you describe yeah. that? Well, we it was the July of 2004. 2004. We were mobilized and sent to Fort Drum, New York, up by Watertown. And during that time, marksmanship training, land navigation. Everything. Uh, uh, lots of physical training. Medical conf- classes. Medical classes. Um, at least 50% of the unit were trained as combat lifesavers. Right. Um, Convoy training, which was a lot, yeah. a lot of time spent uh, working on how to drive in Iraq. IED right. training, training, how to identify those, how to protect yourself, how to call, call them in. And in terms of your expectation for what you would be doing as a musician, what did you anticipate your role would be over there? Well, originally they told us that we were going to be a 100% musical mission. But then... Well, the situation was always very fluid. It was always changing depending on their needs. And once we actually were in country, 
they required a lot of security details from which, us. Which were put on our band. Yeah, so they needed personnel to do this. There was a lot of, lot of security needed to be handled. So our band over there had security guard duty for 24-7, so our entire unit was not always together. Right. We had nine people constantly in rotation, so we were always missing nine people from the unit. So we couldn't play in our concert band because we had people missing all the right, time. Right, or the marching band. Everybody's much smaller units. So, yeah, so we ended up creating all the smaller groups. We had a Dixieland band, jazz band, a Latin band, right? There was a Latin jazz band. Um, there was a... A church band. Church band, a brass band. A brass quintet. And a marching band, marching of course. Marching band. And what was... Uh, R&B? They kind of had an R&B band R&B going. R&B slash show band. Yeah. Kind of. So it was a lot of diverse styles. So what we ended up having to do is we had our jazz slash Dixieland group, which was seven people. We were also a security detail. So the days we were on security, three people were up controlling access to the tactical operations center. We had female soldiers guarding the front gate. Can you talk about that a little bit? Um, Well, we had to go to the front gate where like a big uh, gated area all the way around which was the entrance into our FOB. And, and um, your FOB is? Forward operating base. We were at FOB danger. People who didn't leave the FOB or go outside the wire were called FOBITs. FOBITs? FOBITs. <laughs> so Fortunately, we, the band were FOBITs a lot of times. <laughs> yeah, so we had to form two squads before we even entered this gate, and we had these long mirrors, and they would we'd have to divide into two directions, and we would have to we'd all have our weapons out, kind of like checking out the area and the mirror was over the gate looking for anybody on the outside trying to throw a bomb into us and then once we got to the front of the gate there was a little shack that had a window and two of us had to go in there and and we had to hold our weapon facing the entrance gate and we were just told that if anything happened we were start firing right we had to do that because you had to pat down the female locals that were coming on the base right that was the other thing That's it. Yeah, because so the guys couldn't touch the female Iraqis, so we we had to search. We had one holding the weapon, and the other one had to actually search the Iraqi woman, like, everywhere. You know, they taught us how to search. Very mm. personal. Mm. So that wasn't that wasn't a enjoyable time. <laughs> you were both soldiers, you are veterans, and, um, and musicians. Can you talk a little bit about this intersection of being a soldier and a musician? Well, we were a morale unit, so our job really was to bring the spirits up while we were there. We were in a terrible place. I think I cried every day we were there. Our unit was to bring up the spirits, and um, music does that to people. Yeah, well, we Emotionally. Have, oh, absolutely. People are doing really, really terrible jobs that most of us will never experience. Right. And then if you can take them away from that for a little while. We had other jobs as well. We had right. to uh, perform memorial services. And Pete, yeah. you're a trumpet player, so mm-hmm. I assume you were called upon to play tax. Right, I had to serve as a bugler, and I was also right. a trumpet section leader. So on my second day in country, I had to take another trumpet player from our unit and shadow first infantry division band who we were relieving i traveled with the brass quintet on some black hawk helicopters to see how they would do the memorial service for soldier had just been killed there 
been several media articles in the past few months um, about efforts to reduce the budget for military bans. What's, what's your reaction to this? I think, again, it's a reflection of our society in a lot of ways. You see symphony orchestras and ballets and opera suffering because the public doesn't really support them the way they used to. And not that in the military that's supposed to be high art. I mean, it has another purpose. But I think if it starts getting away from being human and that connection that we all need. I I believe that the music is very important in the military. War is such a devastating thing for anyone to have to go through. And music says a lot. It paints a lot of pictures. And everyone has their own story that they might get from that music. Melinda, you created a remarkable record of your time in Iraq through letters that you sent home to family and friends, and you were very generous and shared that with me. And I wonder if you might read a few short excerpts. Sure. As I sit here writing, I wonder how life deals the cards, and I realize how precious those cards really are. We recently had two attacks where the mortars hit our FOB, forward operating base. There were casualties, and as far as we know, there were no fatalities. I was extremely lucky because I was not anywhere near the impact site of either attack. The funny thing is, it was in my plan both days to be at the impact site at the exact time of the attack. Only my path was altered both times. Someone was watching over me. The attacks were only days apart. On a lighter note, while playing with our Dixieland band, a soldier approached us with tears in his eyes to thank us for doing what we do and that we reminded him of home, New Orleans. That made our day. I'm still playing most every day, which is great. We do lots of ceremonial and memorial gigs, and we fly to those gigs on Black Hawk helicopters. They look to me like huge bugs. The helicopter lifts straight up, which is kind of weird, yet a neat experience. Our instruments are loaded on with us. We usually travel in two to four helicopters, depending on how many of us are on the gig. I still don't like going on them too much because they have a high risk of crashing. Convoying is much more dangerous, and the chances of being shot or hitting on IED is much greater, so the Black Hawk is a better choice. They say that some people know who they are at a young age, and many others spend their lives trying to figure it out. I fall on the latter part. I spent my 45th birthday in Iraq. Who would have thought I'd be in Iraq at 45 years old? Who would have thought it would take this long to discover who I am? Since being in Iraq and the few years leading up to the deployment, I've discovered so much about myself. I've come to realize that my true passion is to play jazz music and go somewhere with my playing. A few days ago, we were hit again with a rocket, and this time it hit RAO, Area of Operation. We have a building located across the street from the Harem Palace, where we live, and we rehearse in that building. The rocket hit that building. All I remember is a very loud boom and the sky filled with black smoke. It was early evening, and I've ne- I'll never forget that sound or the feeling of how close it really was. <laughs> It's bringing back memories. Once again, someone was watching over us. We were lucky we weren't rehearsing. Thank God for guardian angels, because I know we have one. Can I ask you another question? So you two have gone through amazing things as comrades, and now you still play music together. Can you just talk a little bit about that? We battle ended up buddies. being battle buddies, so we had to watch out for We watched each other's we back the whole time. We a lot of details together, and we were able to run those groups together. And I think it just gave us a very strong connection. Before I wrap up, I just wonder um, if you can talk about what being a musician means for you. It's 
your identity. It's a part of who you are. It's a way to express yourself. Right. There are a lot of things you. I I certainly have trouble putting things into words. So I think once I have the horn up to my face, I can get things out a little easier that way. A lot of times, when, growing up, I would get laryngitis, and my only way to speak was through my clarinet. So I would practice all the time, and it was great because I couldn't communicate to anyone else because I didn't have a voice. But when I played, I felt like I was singing to everybody. I want to thank you both very much for coming in and talking. Well, thank you. Thank you. Nice to be here. That was WNPR's Diane Orson speaking with clarinetist Melinda Burnham and trumpet player Pete Rowe. Both are retired U.S. Army staff sergeants who served as military musicians during the Iraq War. Pete's currently a core player in the orchestra at Goodspeed Musicals and and a busy professional freelance musician. He also teaches at the Hart School Community Division and in Ridgefield, Connecticut. Melinda plays with Capital Winds. She's also worked as a chef, and she hopes one day to open her own gourmet jazz food truck. To see photos of their deployments, you can go to our website, WMPR.org. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson. Our technical producer is Kyone Wolf. WMPR's executive producer is Katie Tolarski. To learn more about the show, go to WMPR.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>